it started with a bicycle violation. Why are we policing bicycles in such a way that, that it can lead to death? In these situations, not just bike situations, but every sort of situation of racial profiling, officers are using very minor technical violations that are almost impossible to avoid. If you're on a bike or in a car, you're going to do something very slightly illegal, you know, every 10 minutes or so. I think it's particularly notable in the bike universe because you're not dealing with a three tons of speeding metal. As much as it pains me to say this as a San Franciscan, LA <laughs> has leapfrogged ahead of the Bay Area in terms of aggressive transit expansion. You know, when you see people using CEQA to stop things that we know have environmental benefits like bike lanes, uh, you realize that there's just something wrong with the process. Literally one disgruntled neighbor can bring a lawsuit that really overturns a consensus that's been built by an entire community. Bike Talk, KPFK Livestream. This is Don Ward and my co-host Nick Richard. Today we have Ace Katana and he is a criminal defense attorney, co-founder of Brown Game LA and a member of the Los Angeles Public Defenders Union Local 148. So basically you're working with uh, the county as a public defender? That's, that's the game. So, all right. <laughs> Welcome to the show, man. We wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, the recent um, shooting uh, by sheriffs. I guess it's LA County sheriffs that that shot um, Dijon Kizzy, who uh, was riding a bicycle at the time. He was pulled over, I guess, by the, by the sheriffs who don't know the details or the details are still emerging, right? Or do we know more about what, what happened with the incident? So there are the there are a lot of, you know, the details are very sketchy right now. What was what has been the official line right now is that uh, he was riding his bike. He was uh, stopped by the sheriffs for a some bike law violation. They have not specified what yet. Um, and that um, when they tried to stop him, he fled while they were chasing him. This is still like, I don't know. There may be more details now, but when they were chasing him, a, he dropped some clothing in the, in the clothing, a gun fell out of the clothing and they reacted to him dropping a gun by shooting him. Um, the, you know, some things are still very up in the air. I have not seen anybody specify what sort of uh, bike law infraction or violation he was allegedly committing when they tried to stop him in the first place. But that's the basic outline of what we know right now. Um, the sheriff's department is yeah. notoriously tight-lipped about everything that they do, but particularly when something like this happens. So we'll see what comes out in the next couple of weeks, obviously. Do we know if they had body cameras? Uh, the sheriff's department does not yet have body cameras. Uh, they are in the process of getting them, but that was actually, uh, that project has actually been stalled out for a long time. Um, I gotcha. believe, okay. you know, and a lot of it, a lot of the reason for the delay has to do with um, essentially fighting over who has control of the footage or how the footage is going to be stored, which is something that's very fucking 
Am I allowed to curse? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's of course, what happened. Yeah, of course, it's bike box. Totally uh, which, which is something that which is something that is extremely uh, a, uh, a a subject of great importance when you're talking about body cameras. Like the person who has control of the footage and custody of the footage has an enormous amount of power over what happens, particularly in cases where there's misconduct. Um, so, right. So that's the reason I think that the sheriff's department has stalled on getting body cameras for so long. Um, okay. So we'll see if that now, gets rolled out. Now we, we uh, you know, obviously every time somebody is shot dead by the police or agents of the government or whatever, you know, we call them, um, we want to investigate. We want to know everything that happened, right? Like every, every time that the state kills someone, they, the state should be accountable. So that's the, the broader picture here is that that needs to happen. And um, on the ground level, you know, a lot of people brought up that, that Dijon was riding a bicycle and what led to the incident is that the sheriff's, pulled him over for some reason as he was riding a bicycle. And, you know, I wanted to get into a little bit of, of that angle to it where, um, you know, I've seen a lot of folks online talk about, um, you know, like basically his death came from a bicycle violation, like whatever the mechanism that got to his death was, it started with a bicycle violation. Why are we, you know, necessarily policing bicycles in such a way that, that it can lead to death, right? I mean, right. do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, you know, I'm, well, well, yeah, you know, I, saw, really, I saw what you wrote on, yeah. Yeah, it really does. It, it really illustrates, I think, the ways in which the, situations that most often turn deadly uh, and the situations in which the police are using lethal force against people are not situations where they're taking down an assassin or, you know, interrupting an armed robber or a bank robber or something of that nature. Uh, these situations are generally growing out of, uh, coming out of extremely insignificant cont contacts, right? Things like a speeding ticket, or somebody, you know, having a mental health crisis and, you know, disturbing the peace or somebody in this case, violating some bike law. Maybe he didn't have the right light on his bike. Maybe he wasn't wearing a helmet or going the wrong, you know, driving on the sidewalk where somebody, where they said you weren't supposed to ride on the sidewalk. Um, those sort of insignificant violations are used as, are under the law. Uh, police are allowed to use them as pretext to stop people and to begin more substantive investigations. So basically what, what you wind up having in, in these situations, and these situations, uh, not just um, bike, situ bike situations, but every sort of situation of racial profiling, you have a situation where officers are using uh, very minor technical violations that are almost impossible to avoid. If you're on a bike or in a car, you're gonna do something very slightly illegal you know, every 10 minutes or so, just very slightly. And using that as pretext to stop someone 
and try to find a basis to search them or try to find warrants or try to find another basis to make a larger arrest. Um, I, I think it's particularly notable in the, the, the bike universe because we're dealing with something, you know, you're not dealing with a, a three tons of speeding metal. You know, you're not dealing with something that uh, is as inherently dangerous as a car, right? Uh, you're dealing with a much, uh, a much more flexible, free sort of, um, you're glitching out there if you're saying something. Whoop, we lost you. Well, he'll, he'll be back. Oh, there, you back? He'll get it together. Okay. Yeah. We're dealing with a situation where the consequences for a violation are, you know, fundamentally much less and, and in a field where people don't even necessarily think of the things that are violations as in any way criminal or wrong or even practical. Uh, and very extensively, they are bases for uh, pretextual stops, pretextual searches, and the sort of harassment that can uh, grow out of that. Um, I've had defended a number of cases where uh, somebody being stopped on a bike for a pretextual reason gives rise to a search and the discovery of contraband or gives rise to uh, a sort of violent or more harassing interaction that leads to somebody being charged with quote unquote resisting arrest. Um, and so the, the, I guess what we're, the reason that this becomes such an issue is because these sort of pretextual stops are really the foundational basis of racialized policing. Right? Um, they are the thing that gives the police the ability to consistently and legally harass people of color, people who appear to be uh, of lower socioeconomic status, uh, anyone who appears to be in any way different. Um, and, it let, and it gives them really free reign to do that, which leads to situations such as this. Um, and it might even be unconscious. You never know. It, it, so it can be it can be conscious it can be unconscious i'm not a person who puts a lot of stock in uh implicit bias theories i think that the space in which implicit bias is operating is very limited when it comes to policing you know these are uh in when officers are operating in neighborhoods that are predominantly minority neighborhoods they are operating with the with the thought of trying to find things that are going on that might be illegal. And they do that by engaging in harassing lower level behavior, such as a bike infraction to try to turn up other information or to create a scenario for a search. Is uh, this, is this like a, is this a, a known like policy strategy? Is this what, is this what, uh, what was it called? Broken windows. Is that what that's all about? Right. Broken, broken windows is slightly different. Broken windows policing focuses on the idea that the, by targeting and punishing minor infractions, uh, you create an environment that discourages more serious crimes. This has been thoroughly debunked because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, it doesn't do that at all. Um, it just creates a situation with a lot more, um, a lot more harassment and a lot more people in jail. Pretextual searches and pretextual stops are slightly different in that the thing itself is insignificant and is not the, the thing itself, the violation, the, 
driving on the sidewalk or the not having the right light, that is not even going to be necessarily strenuously punished, right? That's not the sort of infraction that a broken windows policing is looking for. What they're looking for in these sort of pretextual stops is a basis to detain someone and then to investigate, to ask that person, do you have anything on you to maybe pat them down without necessarily quite having probable cause or even sometimes search illegally to ask them, hey, who do you know in there? Are you gang related? Are you like to get information of that sort and then put that into CalGang, which is another, that's another story recently. There have been a lot of stories about abuses of the CalGang system database. Um, but which it's is, about, I'm sorry. So if, you, if, if, okay. if, we, if we were to do policing, right, here's, here's the, here's this kind of catch 22 for like cycling, cycling and pedestrian uh, advocacy groups and organizations is a lot of times the police are relied on to tame car drivers. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of looked at as like car drivers are the most menacing presence on the street and they speed often and break the law often and harass cyclists often. Very much. Um, And, you know, there's the conundrum of like, what does, okay, so what you're saying is policing should exist where it's like, guy commits a fraction, infraction, uh, on a bicycle, the police pull him over and they just simply give him a ticket. They don't, they're not like, what are you doing here? They're not strip searching him or not strip searching, they're searching him, (laughs) strip searching they're not well, searching the person. They're not harassing them beyond handing out an infraction or what are we talking? Well, there are, there are a couple elements here. One thing is that there are many things that are currently criminalized that are infractions, which one might think of as less being like something that should be a legal matter at all and is more just a good idea, right? It's a good idea to have a light on the front and back of your bicycle because it keeps you safer. Is it a matter that should involve the police on any level? That should be, should it, is it something that should be criminalized? That doesn't seem to be as, as reasonable a use of our, the state's resources as many other things, right? Similarly, like the, so there are a couple of things here. One is that there's an expanse of things, infractions and so forth, that should, that might maybe no, don't need to be uh, criminal matters at all don't need to be so you know something that can be like a, a guideline some a suggestion a good idea and ideally good cultural practice but not necessarily something that would allow a agent of the state which is what a police officer is to have cause to stop you right the other element is that we also the the goal is always going to be what creates actual safety right uh, the goal is to say, well, how do we make sure that people are able to share the road? How do we make sure that like cars are not going to harass and kill people? How do we make sure that, um, that everyone is able to exist in like a safe society? And the answer to that one is something that goes in a very different direction than policing, right? I know you've had uh, situations in trying to deal with hit and run drivers uh, where the police were less than, less than helpful. I know your saga, Don. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and I've helped more than a dozen other hit and run uh, 
victims in have gone into the police station with with uh young people that just don't know what to do you know and i've gone into the station with them and they've basically been dismissed or the police are dismissive of you know what happened because you know well you know that that person isn't dead so it's not that big of a deal or something like that and that see that 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 makes so even even with police we did the police already sort of dismiss uh traffic crime and traffic violence um except in these incidents where you know it seems like they harass people or you know um but when you when i bring someone into the station and a lot of times it's a person of color to be honest and i i bring someone in and we go through the steps of like, Hey, this person was in a hit and run. We have the plate number da, 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 da. like they're still very dismissive. Like they're too busy and you know, and they're, yeah, and that, they're, so they're that, not, they're not trying to, to, they're not trying to have more work, I guess. And that stuff is serious. A hit and run with injury to a person is a felony, right? Uh, if it was intentional, that's a serious violent felony. That can, like, if somebody's, it, you know, it, right. So if somebody's if, convicted. If somebody, of, if somebody breaks their a bone, then it's a felony. If they don't break their bone or they don't get injured, it's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor. But even, even any sort of injury can kind of start elevating things very quickly. Like, the, it doesn't have to be a broken bone. A broken bone is just a real good shortcut in terms of defining great bodily injury. Um, you know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is like you're dealing with cases in the sort of hit and run situations that are potentially extremely significant. If you intentionally injure someone with your vehicle, that's assault with a deadly weapon to it, a vehicle. A conviction for that isn't just a strike felony. That can also ban you from driving a car for the rest of your life. Uh, surprisingly, no. Like it takes a whole lot before it, your license gets suspended in the state. With, with these, with the, 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 I'm, I'm talking about literally the charges. In terms, uh -huh. of what, in terms of what people actually get away with, that's yeah. a different question entirely. But these charges are very significant. And the fact that the police treat them as insignificant or not worth their time is really weird, right? Because legally speaking, some of these things are as significant as a home invasion robbery. I think the, you know, I think to me, what, what, you know, having studied the, the traffic statistics for a long time now, there's so many thousands of hit and runs every year, 20,000 every year. And 1,200 of those are against cyclists and pedestrians that get reported, you know, and the cops aren't even trying to collect a report. There's so much of this crime out there that I think they are just numb to it, you know, like they don't even want to hear about it. They're, they're seriously like, even my case, uh, where I did go to the hospital, I experienced, you know, a lot of bodily injury. They were not trying to hear from me and it ended up being a misdemeanor. It's so crazy. So Ace, you were on your way, I think, to talking about how do we police the streets without police or how do we, tame traffic without police. And right. we're establishing and, that maybe it's not such a big loss, but what will 
there be? Well, the, the question, the thing is always to come, the thing to always come back to, and I'm like a, I'm a police and prison abolitionist. I'm very firm on that. The thing to, is to discuss is like, how do you create actual safety, right? How, what do you do to create a space that is actually safe? You invest in roads where there are protected bike lanes. You reshape roads to slow the flow of traffic so that people aren't able even to go traveling at the speeds they would, like that extremely dangerous speeds. You make it harder for that to happen or you make the road, reshape the roads so that it discourages that sort of behavior. Uh, you create streets that are, where that are designed for pedestrians and cyclists first. And that's how you actually address the problem of, you know, the danger of uh, vehicles, right? Because it doesn't do us much good to, like in, in, in the ultimate terms, like our goal here isn't to get convictions on people after they kill people. The goal is to make killings not happen, right? Because the, no system can bring somebody back from the dead. Yes. So the question, so it's, it's always a question of how do you make the streets safer and what actually contributes to that? So in our, you know, battle to get safe streets, we're going to talk later to Michael Schneider, who uh, did a lot of political work to try to get a safe street configuration in his neighborhood. And the council member just completely denied him. And I would say that the council member, this isn't unusual, council members do this all the time, Ryu did it, um, it's, it's, LeBonge did it, it's, it's, um, there isn't the political will, like, you know, they, they, there's a lot of ingrained car culture going on, and when people hear that this street is going to be reconfigured to make their drive slower, you know, not actually slower, technically, but perceptively slower, um, they're going to be against it. So what, you know, when I saw your tweet, you know, asking for the bike community to, to sort of come to the table here and join this protest, it's like, I want to join, but I want to join and I want to get people on board with, hey, we have to redesign our streets and you're not going to be able to speed and drive as fast are you comfortable with that and people are going to have to make that choice and I, I think we can convince people but if we're going to build this big coalition that that says like hey we want less police infractions we got to ask them for something right like wouldn't do you think that people would join we could join together and start making a louder pitch for no, say think, street configurations with this I, argument. I think absolutely. I mean, the core of the movement to defund the police is to take this massive pool of money that we're devoting to one form of quote unquote safety. Like we, we have a hammer and we treat everything as nails when in fact we have a lot of different issues that need to be uh, resourced and addressed directly. Like improving the, the, Pedestrian safety of streets is a huge one in terms of what contributes to our day-to-day -day safety. You know, and by the same token, removing the police from uh, traffic infractions and traffic enforcement, as there's been some discussion of, is another way to improve people's safety. It reduces the risk of harassment and killings, like in Dijon Kesey's case, and it reduces the 
like it reduces the experience of stress and violence. In, and so those are ways we uh, essentially, in, in many ways, it's a similar, talking about the police and the police budget is similar to talking about the, uh, the Pentagon and the military budget in that it's a huge amount of money. Uh, in Los Angeles, it's more than half of our general fund in, L in the city of Los Angeles uh, and billions and billions of dollars across the rest of the county. Um, for other police departments, the sheriff's department and smaller local police departments. And th that's money, just like the, the Pentagon's budget, the military budget, that eats into what is possible, uh, eats, in, eats up the resources that we could use to target and improve our, our actual safety in all sorts of different areas. Um, and, the, the and, and in the case of, of you know, streets, the way that, that the budget sort of works is the feds have a crap load of money available for freeway infrastructure and um, road widenings. And, you know, a lot of that money could be repurposed for street infrastructure. And a lot of this police money really should go into like education budgets, I think. I mean, education, not just on like transportation, but in schools and so forth. There's so much money all, being spent on the police. It's crazy. All over the place, it, you know, education, services, counseling, violence interrupters, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on. There are many things that we need and many things that have been, you know, uh, accomplished by a lot of folks you know, working independently, but it still so, falls so much short of what we could do if we rethought uh, and reimagine what safety actually meant, right? Okay. Safety isn't safety isn't the guy with a gun who come that like either shoots me down in the street or you know what in a best case scenario catches somebody after they've killed me. Safety is somebody who is arranging things so that I'm protected from the jump, the to to uh, to avoid the need for for violence, to avoid the need for uh, a retribution to create safety so I don't have to worry about some shit happening to me in the first place, right? Uh, right. And, and the, 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 this really, go, and this goes back to, you know, the, the bike universe intersects with a lot of really interesting, important thinking about cities and how cities are designed and who they are designed for. Right. What should a city look like is the big thing that like a lot it's on a lot of people's minds. And the bike movement is an incredibly important part of that in prioritizing pedestrian and bike infrastructure and public transportation rather than private automobiles, which frankly suck and are really contributing to the this lovely uh, smoke haze that I see outside my window as our as our uh, state burns. Um, and, but the, you know, the, I guess what I, what I mentioned, you mentioned the, the tweet I had and what I was specifically like kind of pointing to there or calling out for is that there is a, a universe of urban design and uh, urban infrastructure design beyond the, simply the physical, but an understanding of how our other systems are intersecting with it to make it either accessible or inaccessible for, for other people. Uh, that the the physical you know, the, and, and, and a lot of that the the transportation infrastructure 
that we build puts a lot of pressure on low income folks in, in a couple of ways. Like you're expected to, because our infrastructure is, um, you know, centered around driving a vehicle, you are expected to purchase a vehicle, you know, for thousands of dollars. This could be one of the most, this is the most expensive thing that most people buy in their lives. Absolutely. And uh, you're expected to have that, maintain it. And that, that's a lot of stress for people that are on the lower income, you know, lower end of the income spectrum. And we've designed our cities so that it's difficult to choose any other option. So that's part of, you know, public transit, walking, biking. Biking should be very easy, you know. So um, we're about to bring on uh, Scott Wiener and, and uh, uh, Laura Friedman in a well, few minutes when they, when they get on. Are, are they they on seem right? to have given them the wrong link, but uh, I'm trying to get in touch with them. So, so feel free to, okay, so we'll keep going. We'll keep going. But I'll just okay. let you know when they come on, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll take absolutely. a break. And then, but this is a great conversation, Ace. Thanks for coming on. Like, of course, your perspective I'm, is so much. So I'm, much I'm, glad to, I'm glad to be here. Like it's it's really vital. Like I, I love Los Angeles. I love the city of Los Angeles. I'm the real city person in general. And I what what it matters greatly to me is creating a city that's really accessible and uh, really accessible for everyone that allows everyone to participate. And yeah. so the, the universe of, you know, the, the universe of urban design intersects really strongly with the questions about like policing, police brutality and police harassment, because that's where you get to like, how are we, are, are we organizing physical space, but not thinking about how we're organizing legal space, you know? Who is this designed for? And will it? And are we making things that will actually be accessible for everybody, black, white, Latino, uh, you know, indigenous, or are we creating a space that is designed for one sort of person who can, you know, take advantage of it and travel in that way, while still putting enormous pressures on on other people? So, yeah, I, our, our transportation system is completely classist really and that oh, you know future. obviously tell us a little bit about about ground game to kind of switch it up before uh okay um, well, the senator's senator gets on um tell us tell us about ground game so the first time i heard about ground game was uh jessica salins uh right. ran for cd13 and she actually did really well and that was thanks to Ground Game, I think. Well, we, well like. we didn't we didn't exist in that form yet. Or, or Ground Game came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Once once basically what happened is once the campaign finished, we stopped and said, "What if we just try to do everything we were talking about doing when we were when she was running, even though we didn't win?" And we so we got to work. So Ground Game. And you you guys have worked on other campaigns and really put a lot of power behind. Uh, some campaigns. I see that Laura and Scott are with us now. So we're, we are going to wrap it up with you, Ace, Absolutely. but um, I want to have you back on and talk some more about Ground Game and, the, and what you guys have been doing and, and talk about Nithya as well. Because um, I think you guys are going to be working on that campaign, right? Oh, we, we, a, a lot of folks uh, associated with Ground Game have been volunteering or working on that campaign. 
Jess, Perfect. Jess Salins is actually one of her campaign managers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay. So we'll have you back on, hopefully, if you, if you Excellent. can. So we'll glad to, we're glad to. I'm glad to okay. talk to you. Ace Kitano, Ace thanks for coming on and, and you know, talking about uh, Dijon Kazee and, and um, uh, have a good Friday. Take care. You too, guys. All right. Next up. We have um, some heavy hitters in the California legislature. Um, our friend, we can call it, I think we can call Laura our friend, uh, Laura yeah. Friedman, California Assembly member of the 43rd District, right? Yep. And, and uh, California State Senator Scott Weiner, who you are up in the Bay Area. Scott, San Francisco. Laura, welcome, San Francisco. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I uh, have been working on getting you guys back for SB 288, which I was very excited about. Am I disproportionately excited? Is it <clears throat> as exciting as I was, as I, as I am? It's excited exciting. Am? It's exciting. Can you, it's uh, sort of clearing the hurdles of the California Environmental Quality Act for certain transit projects that we know are, don't hurt the environment so they can get through. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, we basically, we have, a lot of public transportation projects, bus, light rail, and also bike and pedestrian safety improvements that are inherently uh, pro-environment and key to a sustainable uh, future and to fighting climate change. And yet, um, the, sometimes, at times, the, the California Environmental Quality Act has been used to slow or stop those projects. Like in San Francisco, our bike plan was held up for years and years um, under CEQA, uh, environmental laws, even though it's, it's Biking is obviously super pro-environment. Uh, and so uh, this will allow streamlining and uh, basically a new, an exemption from uh, CEQA for these kinds of sustainable projects. And so we introduced it during this shortened session and uh, had the honor of bringing it to uh, my friend, Laura Friedman's committee. She chairs the Assembly Natural Resources Committee and she became a full partner in the bill and actually made it a better bill. And, uh, and so it was a great team effort. And hi, Laura. Yeah, so it, are hi. you the two houses? I don't exactly know how state government works. <laughs> yes, we're in separate houses, but we are, I think Scott and I are kind of like partners when it comes to yeah. most things. We, th there's a silliness where, where it's like the assembly versus the Senate and it plays out every year. And it's like, uh, I think sort of high school um, but in the end, we're all elected by the same people. So, um, you know, it's, uh, we all have to work together. Don had, had some questions or thoughts, I think. about. <laughs> well, um, you know, I am pretty familiar with the CEQA. Um, well, the process and how it kind of works politically, we were using CEQA to stall a bridge project here in Silver Lake, the Hyperion Bridge to try to get leverage for bike lanes on the bridge. And I, we actually brought it to a lawsuit and um, it was because they didn't do the environmental uh, impact report, the EIR. Um, they were just trying to pass through a mitigated negative declaration. And uh, so it's kind of interesting in that sense in that we were using it to try to get uh, bicycle lanes they, the judge basically steamrolled us, um, but 
I supposedly there's going to be some kind of bike infrastructure on the bridge. So we did get a little bit of a victory, but we lost Can, the sidewalk and it was kind of an interesting experience to. And, and you, you know firsthand how CEQA can be used to stop something. Yeah. I mean, you're basically using it as leverage uh, to try to get something else politically, right? Is that most of the time they're using it to stop bike lanes though. So this well, is good. I'm sure it's CEQA. I mean, I'm sure we had to fight for CEQA too. So just to clarify, uh, this bill would only give the CEQA streamlining for the bike lane part of the equation, but if they were trying to do the bridge work for passenger cars, this bill wouldn't have any effect on that. But can I just say one other thing uh, about Senator Scott Weiner? Scott Weiner is such a warrior for so many issues for transit, for active transportation, for public health, for equity. And he is coming under incredible attack right now, anti-Semitic attack, death threats by the Q crazies out there because of a bill that he authored, a, a bill that was controversial but really shouldn't have been controversial that's being twisted and used in the most disingenuous and hateful way. And he has really been bearing the brunt of this uh, sort of Q conspiracy theory attacks in California. And it's being expressed in the most disgusting, vile way yeah. with people not even hiding their anti-Semitism. Um, drawing pictures of him with yarmulkes and, and other things and, and calling him names. So I just want to give him a little Southern California love, uh, Scott, <laughs> that you deserve for fighting every day for so many righteous causes. So uh, it's an honor uh, to absolutely. be Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you're definitely a legend, man. Uh, SB50, I mean... I live in a kind of a suburban area of Los Angeles and you're definitely a uh, target of a lot of, I don't know how you describe them. It's like homeowner NIMBY types that are afraid that there's going to be a bunch of development because there's a transit project nearby. And it's like, that's going to take years and years and years way off into the future. Like we want this, we want to have density around transit. Sorry guys. But yeah. uh I mean, I, I, I um, and the feeling is very mutual to Ms. Friedman. Uh, just uh, we're, we're great partners on a lot of these issues. Um, uh, you know, it, it's interesting on the on the housing and transportation. You know, we have these fights about parking and bike lanes and, and development, and where where you know it can be World War Three about uh, when you try to run a bus down a street where it mm -hmm. hasn't had a bus before. I've, I've, when I was in local government, we had those fights. Um, but the, these fights are, you know, they're rough, but at least, you know, I, I can understand what, when if mm. I don't agree with them. Someone says, I don't want change in my community. Like I, I, I may not agree with them, but I, I at least understand mm. where they're coming from. Um, but the, what we're dealing with now on this other issue with QAnon um, about this bill to stop discrimination against LGBTQ young people on the sex offender registry, QAnon is like, I mean, it's like this cult, like delusional thing that Donald Trump has fostered. And that it's harder because there's really no substance to where they're coming from. So I've decided I'll take the NIMBYs over the QAnon people any day of the week. I can at oh, least I mean, like, I, sit down and talk to the NIMBYs. <laughs> I saw some of the, the 
the stuff against you on social media and these people are still hashtagging Pizzagate. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's, I, I, is I this, had, is it, this is real. This is no, actually I've had, real. I've had like people. tens of thousands of comments, you know, calling me a pedophile with all, they'll put like 30 pizza emoticons. It's like, yeah, it's really crazy. These people, they're convinced that there is this massive network, massive pedophilia network led by Hillary Clinton. Um, to like, you know, enable pedophilia, it's, it's crazy. And they, it's like the modern version of the Salem witch trials. It really is at that, at that and level. And now, now, now this is bleeding into our local politics. This is insane. Well, they have a candidate who's winning a seat somewhere and there is her democratic challenger just dropped out of the race. Uh, it's, it's frightening. There was an article I saw somewhere where they were interviewing, some journalist was interviewing people across the country about their the election. And there were people citing this as the reason they're voting for Donald Trump because this under, there are COVID tents in New York that are, uh, that are really just fronts for this child um, sex trafficking rings that drink the blood of children. Uh, which by the way, you know, harkens back to, you know, again, the anti-Semitic, uh, uh, you know, uh, old stories about Jews drinking children's blood. And, you know, somehow George Soros is involved in this. And uh, it's really, it's out of hand. This is just out wow. of hand at this point. Because there are people across the country, like normal people who are believing this now. And I, I do think that there's a, some kind of psychology going on with the anxiety people are feeling right now, just across the country about all manner of things, the pandemic, the climate crisis, um, social unrest, you know, all these things that are scaring people and they feel like if they, they know something that other people don't, uh, they know about this conspiracy theory, it, it somehow gives them something to latch on to. But it's also, and I think that's absolutely true, I think it's also the, the toxicity of social media, <clears throat> which gave us Donald Trump in 2016, because people just start seeing something on their newsfeed um, or on Instagram and they just, they believe it. Someone shared it, so they believe it. And so we've gotten like thousands and thousands of direct messages on Instagram in particular and also Facebook. Some of it, you know, with horrible death threats, but also people who are just angry. Why are you legalizing pedophilia? Which of course we're not, we would never do and we're not doing. Um, but Wait, so what, 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 what is the bill that this stems from? You're, this was like some kind of a, a a bill yeah. that we're proposing that would it right yeah. now our pedophile laws are are just, uh, uh, yeah. they're, they're, please explain like yeah so it's it really simple we have statutory rape if someone you know has sex with someone who's under 18 statutory rape um and with a punishment and we don't nothing we're doing changes that if it's statutory rape now it'll remain that way if there's whatever punishment it'll remain that way but the question is who goes on to the sex offender registry, which is not punishment, which is a, that exists so law enforcement can track people who are risk to the community if someone's a sexual predator. And so for the last, so right now, the problem is that when you have situations where you have young people having sex, but one is over 18 and one is under 18, uh, the California law allows judges to keep the straight kids off of the registry if they decide there was no predatory behavior here. The 19-year-old who is having sex with his 17-year-old girlfriend, the judge can look at the facts of the case and say, you know what, that was statutory rape, you're guilty, but you were, we're going to not put you in the registry because you're not dangerous. 
if it's a the 19 year old boy having sex with his 17 year old boyfriend, the judge must put him on the registry and has no ability to keep him off, even if the judge doesn't want to put him on. And the reason no. for that distinction, the reason is that in 1944, when the sex offender registry was created in California, we had anti-sodomy laws. And so gay sex was illegal. And so it was treated much more harshly than you know, what, you know, straight inter vaginal intercourse. And so even though we repealed those anti-sodomy laws in the 70s, they remain as part of the sex offender registry. And so what our bill does is to say, we're gonna treat the gay kids, the gay young people, exactly the same way that we've treated the straight young people for the last 76 years. It's a pure equality law. And the QAnon people have latched onto that saying, you are somehow um, legalizing pedophilia, which is false. You're reducing the punishment, which is false. Uh, and you're somehow empowering pedophilia, which is completely false because you're still guilty of a crime and the judge can still put you on the sex offender registry if you were engaging in predatory behavior. So it, it's, uh, you know, QAnon has gone crazy about this. Donald Trump Jr. has been posting about it. Rush Limbaugh, Ted Cruz, trying to spread misinformation, which is why we were targeted. And with the messages we got, not from the crazy people, from the people who were just angry, we would respond by sending them a link with accurate information. And a lot of them would then come back and say, oh my God, I totally support that, that makes sense. But they had seen people in their network posting false information, fake news. And, and that's the, the, the trouble that we're seeing with, with, with social media and how people get their information. Wow, wow. Uh, wow. So, it, okay. Is this going to affect, I mean, is this going to happen? Like, okay, you're safe, right? Oh, this, this, yeah. Are you safe? Like, do you I have, hope I am. I mean, we've gotten a lot of death threats. We're, you know, we're working with law enforcement that there are limits to, you know, what, what they can do. Um, so we just got to be careful. I mean, that's the thing in politics. When you're in elected office, you know, there are always risks involved and, if you're a mayor or the governor, you have security, but other people don't, um, nor would I want round the clock security. I don't want to live that life. Um, but, you know, I mean, we've all, I'm sure Laura has as well. There are times, and Laura was the mayor of, of Glendale before, there are times when people can become obsessive um, and people can make threats and engage in bizarre behavior. And you just have to be careful and, and take care of yourself. Mm, okay. But if you, if, I don't know, do, do you, it was really uh, eye-opening to see this, all of the things that people are tweeting and, and doing on Facebook and everything. Um, very, I mean, it's, it's just our country right now. Yeah, on really. A lot, on, a, on a lot of issues, on a lot of issues. I mean, I Facebook and social media, they're basically like, just a, they should be a system of information but uh, people are kind of disgusting around the country. What have we gotten? I mean, look. I think there's something about about Twitter, particularly about the nature of it, that invites a lot of very bad behavior. And there's a lot of good things, and I learn a lot of stuff on there. And there's definitely people who find their networks, but there's also a mentality of really people. People, I think, goosing each other on to gang up on people um, and to be very unfair. You know, it's hard to have a nuanced conversation 
in whatever amount of characters they give you, which is not a lot, but people sort of, they're trying to have conversations about things that are very complex, but the format doesn't allow it. So what right. you end up with is a lot of kind of hyperbole and people definitely are going into their corners and in with their packs. And there's a lot of you're with us or you're against us. And you know, the, that crowd can be your friend one day and attack you the next. And I, it's not particularly healthy. And then, you know, the way that people see validation, if somebody repeats something uh, or repeats it enough, it can become true. And we've all fallen victim to believing something that turned out to be either patently false or just lacking context or lacking the kind of nuance that you would want. And it, it wouldn't be so bad if we had a lot of really good, legit media out there, but we don't have a lot of good legit media left across the country and unfortunately and you know even the la times which does a great job they fired all their you know a lot of their really experienced reporters and hired cheap young reporters who mean well but don't have the the background and they're not getting the kind of mentorship i just see it in my own community where you know take glendale used glendale for instance used to have the glendale news press which you know we used to kind of laugh at i guess but it had a newsroom i mean it actually had a group of reporters they had a presence in Glendale. They were owned by the, the LA Times. And there were people who really knew the city. They knew where the bodies were buried. They knew the community and they knew how to ask questions. And then they all got, a, got fired and were replaced by these, you know, 20 year olds who didn't know what to ask, but, are, but, twit, but tweet. And then they were kind of useless. So they just, the, the paper folded. And that's what's happened all across the country. And we don't have local, much local reporting left. So we don't have people out there really investigating, you know, even in Los Angeles, it's hard for them. They're spread so thin and the newspaper's so thin to really get out into the burbs. And it's, it's scary. I don't like being in a community, in a city, you know, it's a good sized city, 200,000 people that has no reporter who's really knows what they're doing. Who's following city hall, who knows to do any more than print a press release from a council member or, or a state representative. So we're really missing that. And, uh, you know, you, people are using Twitter to fill that void, uh, which works sometimes, but a lot of times it doesn't work. So it's, it's really sad. And this has nothing to do with the bill that you asked us to talk about, but I think- No, it's but it's, that, if there was ever the- It's part of, it's definitely part of the conversation. I mean, Twitter was a big deal in, uh, in the uh, sort of transportation advocacy. Uh, yes, Twitter, like, Twitter likes transportation. <laughs> Twitter does like transportation. Um, we, uh, I see that Yolanda T. Davis Overstreet is with us. Oh, she's just listening, but there was a okay. question about, there He's was a question about equity uh, with regard to these projects. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, if you would just want to talk about the general topic. Well, yeah, SB 288, let's, let's go back to that. And, and it's, it's passed and it's going to the, to the governor, governor's yeah. desk, right? It's on his desk, yeah. Okay, so he has until the end of September to sign it? Correct. How is it looking? Um, I, I, it's always hard to predict. Um, I, I would, I'm optimistic about this bill. Um, can't guarantee it. Uh, the bill has a very strong coalition uh, behind it. Um, it's, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that he will sign the bill. In addition, the transit agencies are very eager for it. And actually, Los Angeles Metro, LA Metro was um, arguably our biggest cheerleader on this bill. 
um, because LA, and I, I, as much as it pains me to say this as a San Franciscan, LA <laughs> has leapfrogged ahead of the Bay Area in terms of aggressive transit expansion. Um, LA really, is doing we're really, number one. Yeah, you're, 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 it's, still, it's still easier to get around the Bay Area on it because we were so far ahead, but LA has really done a fantastic job um, with the funding measure that you all passed um, and now building all these light rail lines, and uh, which I've rode, it was great, it was really easy to ride. Um, and so I, 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 I think LA Metro you know, was really eager to have more and more tools to be able to roll out its plans well. And in terms of equity, we did, we put some strong provisions in. Um, we, you know, we don't, this is about existing right away. It's not about, you know, carving a path through existing neighborhoods where you're tearing down homes. It's, you know, we wanted to be very careful about that. Um, I will say in terms of broader equity, funding is a big issue and making sure that as we are um, making choices in terms of where we're putting bike, pedestrian and transit infrastructure, making sure that we're not leaving uh, low-income communities behind, um, which has happened. So there's sometimes there's something a little bit tricky about these these bills, which raise questions in people's minds. Like with this one, it's somebody asked me today, you know, uh, uh oh, they're they're gonna go around the the uh, sequa, you know, so that could be a problem. That was this person who shouldn't be, you know, thinking twice about something like this. Uh, you know, some of these things are just like your other bill, you know, people get confused and then uh, things are subtle, I guess, and you have to explain why sometimes, sorry, oh. why you would have to, you know, these are, these are environmentally beneficial projects. Yeah. And, you know, it's just not everybody understands how it's like a, something that's supposed to protect us can be used to hold things up. I think, I think when it comes to um, CEQA and other forms of streamlining, part of the issue is people, even though they might be sympathetic in some ways with what you're trying to do, they are still nervous about giving up control. And so, for example, you might have someone who actually, you know, rides a bike or rides the bus or, you know, likes this kind of infrastructure. But if there's going to be something happening in their neighborhood, um, they, they may want to have that complete control to have a complete say. Um, you could have someone, like I mentioned before, when you try to put a bus down a street that hasn't had it before, you can have bus riders come out and say, I don't want this bus near my, coming down my street. And so people, you know, people are complicated. No, we're not unidimensional. And, and so I think that's why you sometimes get that kind of uh, pushback. And that's why we, we made this a very focused bill. It's not meant to be like some broad rambling bill. It's about very focused uh, set of needs. And it's for a limited time? Is it? Two years. And then two years and then we'll evaluate, you know, uh, whether to extend it. And also, oh. you know, these are projects that are done by major transit agencies that tend to have really extensive community outreach and hearings, particularly when you're talking about transit that's using existing right of way. Uh, it's not really a surprise when they want to put projects in and, you know, when you see people using CEQA to stop things that we know have environmental benefits like bike lanes, uh, you realize that there's just something wrong with the process because at the end of the day, CEQA is supposed to inform policymakers. It's not, it's not, it's not a decision maker in and of itself. It's a document. 
and you know the the, the really the, the the and it's supposed to inform what the impacts are going to be. But we know what the impacts are of a bike lane. We know what the impacts are of rail. Um, so um, you know, really, where the community should be having its input is in those community hearings that lead up to the installation of these kinds of projects. And the community has plenty of time to weigh in and. You know, transit agencies will, you know, they're run by people that are elected or appointed and they tend to be fairly responsive to what they hear from communities. The problem with CEQA lawsuits is that they can be brought by anybody for any reason. So, you know, literally one disgruntled neighbor can bring a lawsuit that really overturns a consensus that's been built by an entire community. Um, so again, you know, I, I agree with Scott, it's a very focused bill. We, we actually pared it way down in my committee in some way, in a lot of ways, uh, to make sure that we didn't open up the door for things that were highly impactful projects. Yeah, and um, uh, no, no I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. Is there an organized opposition to this or is this some... Um, there, there, there was some. I mean, other than some, other than the crazy QAnon people. Yeah. yeah no. No. There, there was there was some um, limited opposition um, among some environmentalists, but we were able to actually move some of that to neutrality, and then get some environmental groups to endorse the bill. So, anytime you are creating a new CEQA exemption, um, mm -hmm. there's going to be some turbulence, and there should be. It's a very important law, and it should be well vetted. Um, but the the support for the bill is extremely broad. And, uh, and, and so I, you know, all the bike groups in the state uh, support it. Um, some major environmental organizations, um, it's, it's, it's a well-supported bill. Right on, so that, that looks good then. We got our fingers crossed. Is there anything the public can do to there, help? Well, you, can go, you can go to the governor's website. There's a portal where you can submit a, a note uh, expressing uh, your a position on bills and so people should definitely should definitely do that and this governor is very thoughtful and this year he has fewer bills on his desk than last year because of the covid shortened uh legislative session we just did fewer bills because we had less time this year so i'm sure he'll, he'll get to spend even more time digging into our bills yeah he um he vetoed something. What was that? Nick, we interviewed Dave from Calbike. Well, oh, we're that, was, that was that was that uh, was one of that was one of mine too. That was a bad veto. SB one two seven last year that would have forced Caltrans, Caltrans on yeah, state yeah, yeah, roads yeah, yeah, yeah. to be more bike and ped friendly. He vetoed it. He and his explanation was um, that he he just you know because I was lobbying him ahead of time and he was pretty transparent what his concern was that he had just hired a new secretary of transportation and a new Caltrans director who are both much more progressive on these issues. And he wanted to give them a chance to do it. My argument to him was with a law, it's going to be easier for your new agency heads to say, we have to do this if there's bureaucratic pushback. Um, I know Dave Snyder from Calbike has told me that, um, you know, there are things are going well with the new Caltrans head so far, um, which is good, but you, you still have to watch it closely because that's an agency that has a troubled history on these issues. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, you, really, you know what? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, you really are a hero to the, to the bike movement here, Scott. Yeah. So I wanted no, to play. There's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole group of us that, that do this. Laura is another one. 
Uh, yeah, Laura, of course, yes, yes. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's a bunch of great bike advocates in the, in the legislature. We're not a majority. We need to become a majority, because we don't, but for now, we, we, we do our best. Can I play I a clip? Like, okay. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, Don, Don, you go. And then I'll play my special play, clip. Play that clip, baby. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're sorry. We suck! Sorry, I, I thought it was feel like it's 1985 again. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Laura and Scott, um, I mean, we'd love to have you on longer, but you know, you did say you'd be on until seven. We're respectful of your time. Um, you. We'd love to have you guys on again sometime, hopefully after uh, this thing gets passed. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting Scott's amazing legislation and his great work. And thanks for supporting him and what he does and the, and the advocacy that you do. Happy oh, thanks for I was so, I didn't realize Laura was gonna be on. It was such a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Yeah, we don't see each other anymore. <laughs> yeah, look, at, look at Bike Talk bringing it together on Zoom. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, thank you so much. Okay. Thank yeah, you so much. everyone. Thank you. Bye, Bye Laura. Bye. See you later. You hang up. Uh, digital hugs. Digital hugs. Okay. All right. You did a pre recorded interview with Michael Schneider, who is the executive director of Streets for All. Am I, am I right? And he's got an update on what happened with the, the Melrose project, the $50 million project that would have brought jobs and safety to Melrose and, and beauty, you know, take it away, Nick. All right. Tell me if you can hear this. So it's all subjective, but you seem kind of somber. It's been a rough week. What rough week for progress in Los Angeles. Yeah. Not just with, what we're talking about right now, which is the, uh, the Melrose Transformation Project, Uplift Melrose, but other things too? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm also working on a protected bike lane project on San Vicente Boulevard that is challenging, but Uplift Melrose um, in particular was a, a gut-wrenching blow. Uh, I, was, I was naive. I thought that if you build a broad coalition of residents, businesses, religious institutions, schools, and neighborhood councils, there's two of them that were relevant here, that you could get your way because that's democracy. And uh, the majority, if they want something, especially if there's no fiscal impact to the city, it was free money from the state. Uh, I was under the impression that that's the way things worked. And if you did a lot of the legwork, um, you could get your way, and that's not what happened. Yeah, it was killed by Councilmember Coretz of CD5, sort of at the last minute? Yeah, so this all happened very quickly, and in fact, I just did a Medium post on it today, in case people want to learn more, but um, the short version is that this whole the, thing... The Medium post is called Why We Can't Have Nice Things by you. You wrote it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the short version is over the, it's only a five week old project. I mean, I, I first heard about it five weeks ago and the amount of hustle and sweat and outreach and community meetings and flyering the neighborhood and presenting and, and streets LA hustling to write this grant application because it's due in four days um, was enormous. And, and so 
the last day that city council could have taken action was yesterday. Uh, they didn't wait till then, no. On Wednesday, Paul Coretz introduced a uh, motion to amend the motion before city council to apply for active transportation grants. There's about, I think, a dozen other projects across the city. And he amended it to remove Uplift Melrose. So technically, he didn't kill the project. He just killed the funding source, which right now is the same thing. Uh, yeah, he knows how to kill a project, of course. And your article is at Medium. It's called Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Can you say one more time what the project would have done? It was 40 or $50 million in state money available. You had the community support from two neighborhood councils. It was Greater Wilshire and Mid-City West. You had 250 letters from businesses up and down Melrose, contacted everybody up and down Melrose. Um, yeah, so I want to be clear. It wasn't me. It was a, a coalition of volunteers that wanted this to happen. I played a part. Um, but yeah, we, we had everything you just said. Um, wide business support, residential support. Uh, Streets LA did a survey and uh, based on the zip code of the affected areas, 71% of people that replied supported it. Um, mm -hmm. And the project was transformational. That's probably why the opposition felt so strongly about it too, because it would have been so great for the community that other communities would have wanted it. Um, it was Melrose between uh, Fairfax and Highland. It was all new landscaping, beautiful new trees throughout the entire stretch, the widening of the sidewalk, um, raised crosswalks at every intersection, uh, new lighting, and LA's first curb level protected bike lane. So a Dutch style red painted bike lane that would have been at the curb level. The other thing to point out is Melrose is on the city's high injury network. So it's already a more dangerous street than most. And a protected bike lane is on the city's own 2035 mobility plan. So all Streets LA was doing was proposing- for, spend, for that stretch. For that stretch, for the whole stretch. Melrose for the entire stretch of the street. Already in the city's plan, the mobility plan. Yes. Free money. So- Already in the plan. And to give it a little more context, I live just off, I just live off of Melrose. Um, We've had a very rough year. I mean, everyone's suffering because of COVID, but our area got burned and looted and ransacked. And a lot of stores on Melrose still have boards on their windows. It is a depressed part of the city right now. So this was not just a transportation project. This was not just a bike lane. This was a community revitalization of a iconic street in the city with free tens of millions of dollars of free money if they had won the grant from the state of California. I don't... It boggles my mind that any council member, no matter how much he hates bike lanes and loves cars, could turn down tens of millions of dollars. So this might be a good time to point out that you do a lot more than just this. I mean, you just mentioned the San Vicente project that, well, your organization is Streets for All, which you started. Yeah, yeah so I wear a few hats um, and none of this is my day job. I just really care about it. Um, I am the chair of the transportation committee for Mid-City West Community Council. So that's one of our 99 neighborhood councils. I also started an organization called Streets for All. And we have a great steering committee that is, it's LA's first transportation focused PAC. Meaning we have the power to endorse candidates and raise and spend money on behalf of candidates that share our progressive transportation views and will help push the city forward. Um, so 
the, the Uplift Melrose project, I was much more involved as a Mid-City West board member because the board supported the project. Um, and with the San Vicente thing, I'm more involved in Streets for All capacity because another thing we do, Nick, is we watch the ADAPT program like a hawk, the city's rapid repaving program during COVID. And whenever they're going to repave a street that intersects with the mobility plan, and let's say there's a planned bike lane, we raise alarm bells, we approach neighborhood councils, we approach community, we try to build support and we try to, to make LADOT's life very easy. So when Streets LA comes and repaves, LADOT can come and actually strike the planned bike lane per the mobility plan. It's insane that we have to fight so hard for the city's own plan, but that's where it we It should live. be automatic every time a street is repaved and restriped to yeah. put in the mobility plan stuff. Um, it, so, it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the many things that your organization is doing and has done is this week you had a happy hour Zoom with LADOT General Manager Salida Reynolds. And I'd like to play a clip about that when she talks about what happened with Uplift Melrose. And then you Go can for it. comment on it. It's not moving forward in the next two years and we'll see who gets in in 2022 when Paul Coretz is termed out. But... I think this is a very valid question because, and maybe this is just the personality of individual council members, but if near unanimous support and multiple neighborhood councils and schools and religious institutions and, and businesses and everything else all want something and it's not a budget issue because the money's coming from the state and that's not enough. Um, you know, where does that leave us as a city? And, and as Jonah says, how do, how do we work to help advance mobility if that's the status quo? Yeah. Well, I would say a, a few things. So first of all, take heart. Uh, that project would not have even been in the dialogue if it had not been for the work of all of the organizations that you just mentioned. That in and of itself is progress. Because the second thing that you accomplished or that was accomplished in the moment is that the council member um, had to make decisions in daylight, had to own those decisions, and had to be transparent about them. Um, and that has not always been the case. I've done everything I can to make sure that, you know, elected leaders are the, if they are going to sort of assert themselves in that way, that they do it in a way that is clear. Um, to their constituents, and they do it in a way that um, is not is not opaque, right? That is is in front in front of the the outside the the room where it happens, and not inside the room where it happens. Um, and that is not always the case. And so I think that that is also, you know, sometimes you have to um, you have to comfort yourself with the progress you've made. And the other thing you have to remember is that there are streets in every city that we come back to over and over and over again. Um, Telegraph Avenue in the city of Oakland uh, was a street where I was, when I was the bike and pack coordinator there, we were trying to put in uh, bike lanes down Telegraph Avenue. And I went to countless meetings with, uh, you know, a, a mix of really excited people and really angry people. Um, we got a grant, we did a trial run, we were going to put the thing in, and then the city got sued, and the whole thing died. 
And that happened a few more times before it actually came to life. And now there is a protected bike lane on Telegraph in Oakland that is now extending up through the Temescal neighborhood and hopefully will connect um, with those lanes that go all the way to Cal um, in the city of Berkeley. Market Street in San Francisco is another one. Sometimes your job is to plant a seed for something that, um, but you don't, you, you aren't necessarily the one that gets to be there to cut the ribbon or to see it happen. Um, and I think of Uplift Melrose as one of those projects. This project is one that, you know, there are a few sort of straw men that got put up um, as, you know, reasons not to support the project. And the long game is to get new elected leadership. And the short game is to knock down those straw men because the Caltrans money is not the only money that exists. And there are other ways to keep this project alive and keep it moving along um, without it, it dying off completely. So I would also just say, you know, take heart. This is a big city. There's 7,500 miles of streets. There are a lot of places that need desperately um, really effective organizing and advocacy to step into a vacuum and make sure that they get over the finish line. And so, you know, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. Don't take it personally. See that there were victories in the what, what occurred. Um, and then, you know, on to the next. It feels like a therapy session. So thank you. You're making me feel <laughs> you're a, little, welcome. a little I've been better. doing this a long time, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Your therapist is Salida Reynolds. That's that. Yeah, unpaid. Unpaid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, she sounds good. She sounds like she's listening and on the right. Well, always she's been like the hero, right? Of transportation activists. I feel like Salida gets it. I feel like she truly wants change. I feel like she's a diplomat. So she, she needs yeah. to be a diplomat for her role. So she can't just come out and probably really say what she's thinking. And I think she does what she can to encourage people to get involved in the system. And as she puts it, there's people that work from the inside to try to change things. And there's people that work from the outside to try to change things. And we need both. So um, she gave an example later on in that talk. Um, she said one of the most painful moments in her career was when she had to, they, they had put a bike lane in, in Del Rey because a little girl had been killed on the street and Mike Bonin authorized it. And there was such an uproar and keep LA moving and fix the city and lawsuits and a recall campaign against Mike Bonin over a bike lane. And um, she said, everyone has a boss. And my boss called me and said, go take it out. And it was incredibly painful for her to do that because they did that because someone lost their life trying to cross that street because cars, the design enabled cars to go so fast. So I think she wants what's best. And she, my point was, she said, no, there were no advocacy organizations that came to the other side of it. All council members and the mayor's office were getting calls about was how much people hated this thing. There was no other side where people were, saying, we love this, we want it, I feel so much safer now, thank you for doing this, that side of the conversation was missing. And when only one side talks, and it's not our allies, they win. So one of the things that I think is so critical is uh, for organizations like Streets for All, and of course others, to speak up, rally people to the right meetings, 
the right time and make sure their voices are heard because we've been ignored for too long. So that's one of the things I'm going to uh, look, look for from you from Streets for All is, you know, a calendar of, th- of meetings we can show up to and, and issues we have to be up on. Maybe you already have that. We, we do what's called call for actions. And so we let people know, hey, there's a neighborhood council meeting here. This is what's being discussed. Please call in and make public comment. The one thing we have to be careful about is neighborhood councils are very sensitive to outsiders, people outside that community coming in and telling them what to do. And so while every public comment and support is helpful, it's not as helpful if people from, you know, Cerritos are calling in about a bike lane on San Vicente Boulevard. So we need to um, broaden our reach and build the biggest list possible. So we have a shot at getting to people in their community when things relevant in their community come up and they can go make public comment. So um, yeah, the more the merrier, but uh, targeted is better. Targeted, yeah. Well, the article is, this is why we can't have nice things, where you lay out, it wasn't just Corrette's, it was also the LAPD and fire department wrote these letters giving every possible laundry list reason. You know, it would be worse for people walking their dogs in these really nice streets nearby Melrose was one of them. And um, then they had some other reasons which make you stop and think, but you your organization, Streets for All, addressed every single one point by point, but that was never acknowledged. And, yeah. I we, just, didn't, I, yeah. we didn't know that the LAPD and LAFD were forces of anti-progress to this level that were going to torpedo this project. I was on a call with Councilmember Peretz last Thursday. He told us that he liked the project and was leaning towards supporting it, but he couldn't go against public safety if public safety didn't want it. And at the time, I thought it was just the fire department and I had read, someone had forwarded me uh, the email where the fire department, one of their points literally was, it could delay us because we have to wait for cyclists to clear before continuing or something like that. Right, and there, will be, there will be bike traffic. There will be bike traffic. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, a, uh, a bike is a fraction of the size of a car. And to clear an intersection, even if you're a slow cyclist, you're talking maybe two seconds or three. Um, but what I didn't know at the time, and I know now, is Captain Paulson of the Wilshire Division of LAPD wrote Coretz's office. Um, she, I guess she analyzed the project. Coretz's office asked her for LAPD's opinion. And her opinion in general was it's not good. And, and she made references to, you know, people are not going to be comfortable pushing a stroller on the neighborhood streets. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a father. I push a stroller a lot around here. I'm, I'm more scared to cross the street on Melrose, but okay. Um, mm-hmm. But the worst part about the LAPD's response was she went into a diatribe about calling for a comprehensive review of bike lanes in Los Angeles and saying that, in her opinion, they take very valuable vehicle space away and put in bike lanes that no one uses anyway. So it was like a hit list of of anti-progress NIMBY talking points. And this is an official position coming from the LAPD. She is not an urban planner. She's not an engineer, traffic engineer. She doesn't work for the Department of Transportation. And and the council office is, is relying on her and the LAPD to advise them on stuff. 
Um, you know, it, Michael, I'm, this is making me think if only there were committed people out there taking a good hard look at the LAPD. Well, the LAPD is obviously getting a lot of attention right now for reasons other than this. Um, but, you know, we are a big, multifaceted, sophisticated city. Um, we do multiple things at once. And so we need to reform the police. But we also rely on the police for their opinions on road design, apparently. And if you're a council member that your instinct is not progressive, you don't see the value in complete streets and bike lanes, and you think that no one's going to use them, etc. These are the kind of things that can tip you in the direction of not supporting an otherwise fantastic project. Because um, imagine, you know, from I'm trying to put myself in someone else's shoes. If the LAPD says we can't, I'm sorry, the LAFD says we can't put fires out or we can't guarantee you we can get to a building if it's burning down, if you do this. And the council member who might want to do it, it's like, oh man, if I do this and, a, and there's a fire and the building burns to the ground, I'm going to get blamed for going against public safety. So th these right. are real issues and we need to bring LAPD and LAFD to the table. There needs to be some education and myth busting. There should not be an anti- bike or anti-progressive road design bias in these organizations. And I'm working on it. And I'm, I hope others are too. Thanks, Michael. Your, your opponents also included uh, Keep LA Moving, the people who took out Salida's uh, road diet, also then made Keep Melrose Moving. And Paul Koretz, the council member, used their talking points when in his uh, killing of of the project uh, i don't know if we need to spend any time talking about them we've already well i just want to say nick i think i've made it i got my own keep la moving uh subsection or chapter called keep melrose moving so i've uh i've made it that's, onto their that's list your, yeah yeah you can tell who the good people are by just watching them come up with with uh the anti-good I'm, uh, I'm surprised they haven't put this on their website as a victor yet probably go up next week and um, but you're going to moving forward. You at this great uh, medium article you called uh, "This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things." You showed a collage of all the tweets in support, and by a lot of very intelligent, intelligent, motivated people. And you're 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 seeing, you know, you know. I I got to quote uh, Obi Wan. You know, if you strike me down. Now, when he was killed by Darth Vader, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. 2022, you're going to endorse city council candidates and, and Uplift Melrose is going to be a litmus, a litmus test. They're going to have to, to weigh in on that. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it, and by the way, it's not just about Melrose. Um, the design for Uplift Melrose is a progressive, forward-thinking road design that any community in Los Angeles should be entitled to and should get. And so the litmus test is going to be, this is the project. These are the trade-offs. Would you support it if you were elected, yes or no? And it's sort of um, going to tell us a lot about their values. And if they say yes and then get in and bow to NIMBY pressure, we have their own words and writing to, to call them out. Um, and, you know, our elected leaders, after what happened with Mike Bonin, I think the city council decided – we have more to lose than to gain from supporting bike projects. Just look at what happened in Bonin. So mm -hmm. it's not worth it. And we're going to tip those scales back. We're going to let them know that they can no longer ignore the will of the masses, 
This is not just a car city. Many people want alternative forms of transportation to be safe. And they have more to lose than gain by vetoing these beautiful projects. And that's the message that they have to hear loud and clear to, to change things. But ultimately, we just have to elect different council members and that will get us to where we need to be. And you're working on Nithya's campaign at all? Yeah, I, I don't have any uh, official part of Nithya's campaign. And uh, given we're about to reform our IE in support of her, we're not talking to them. But I can tell you that a guy like David Rue, who basically takes his marching orders from Jim O'Sullivan and fix the city and killed Sixth Street, as you know, a couple of years ago, despite, again, community support, uh, protected bike lane on Sixth Street near LACMA. And also, um, after a woman was killed on Rowena in Silver Lake, and they put in a bike lane to calm down traffic, he, that was done before his time, but he came in in order to review and again, fix the city and Jim O'Sullivan wanted that thing taken out. And uh, thanks to people we both know, Keeper Weena Safe was formed and they fought back and won. And then Rue took credit in his annual report last year for have, having kept Rowena safe, which makes me want to throw up. So it's just, yeah, it's very, it's very po political. What a political person. He, he, he'll tell you what he, he thinks you want to hear. I don't think David Rue cares at all about road safety and bike lanes, and he just doesn't care, and he's not educated. And the worst part is he doesn't really want to educate himself. He's not curious about it. Um, he'd rather focus on other things. So we'll see what he does on San Vicente, because part of that's in CD4. Mm -hmm. And Mid-City West, which is the north side of that street, uh, that's part of um, CD4 as well. So... We'll see if he goes against the neighborhood council. We'll see if he goes against the neighborhood associations that I've gotten support letters from. Um, it's also the southern border of the Miracle Mile Residents Association, which is Jim O'Sullivan, Fix the City. And he's the president of the MMRA. So I, this is in his own backyard, and I bet you it's going to get real. All right. Michael Schneider, Streets for All on social media. And uh, the article in Medium is... This is why we can't have nice things about the killing of the Uplift Melrose Project. Thanks, Michael, for coming and for being Thanks, on. Thanks, Take heart. There you go. I said take heart because that's what Salida said twice to him. So what would you think, Don? Um, Michael Snyder is awesome. I love that guy. Um, you feel like he's actually going to get <laughs> – revenge right like it's gonna happen so um you know there's all kinds of noise going on back there i don't know what that is is that you i think it's eric ochoa our new sports eric reporter ochoa. oh hey how's it going all right so we're gonna go to well just a quick you know yeah. uh you know, welcome to getting rejected by a city council member outright, like getting steamrolled, right? Like Rue does it, um, you know, Tom LeBond before that, Mitchell Farrell does it. They just steamroll you. So somehow we have to build a political coalition that's gonna overturn these people. And um, that's why I'm really excited about Nithya's campaign. So we got to like double down on that, like volunteer, all that stuff. So, all right, let's, let's, um, 
let's didn't, let's get didn't to Ace the, Katano he, he doesn't ground game have a, a they're working on that the, yeah they're working on it, which is good news because that is a powerful force if we can get Michael Schneider um, full force behind Nithya and a couple other groups we could take oh my god I don't even want to say it it's just knock on wood because take a leg that's how that's how you send a message back to the city council because right now everybody's scared because of that Mike Bonin recall thing it's like we get to we get to hit back so um, yeah damn that's motivating I I want to uh, we got to get involved with Cynthia's campaign. Let's, Nick, let's work on this. Yeah. On the, on the side well, I part. asked them if they'll come on again. Okay, let's let's go to our um, news report. Brand new sports reporter. Hey, Eric. I love. Oh, I got to unmute you. Hello? Eric. Yes. What's going on? You, you've got uh, some sport, bike sport news. We've never had that. Yeah, um, but before that, um, just catching the, the ending of the little topic that you guys were talking about. It's funny, I was seeing a video the other day of um, Jeremy Clarkson, who was, um, I think, a co-host in that um, Top Gear show. And he was just kind of going on a, on a rant on how so opposed to um, bike lanes and bike infrastructure in the streets of London he was to um, even going as far as to saying how like riding a bike is so bad for your health everything whoa um yeah who, maybe, wait who was saying this jeremy clarkson um i think more more people will probably know him from um top gear that show about like fast cars oh. and muscle cars okay. and all that but yeah he was going on a rant about how like bad bicycles are for the environment how he's opposed to improving bike infrastructure in the streets of london because it's totally unsafe and it was touching on the same thing with how they were talking about the firefighters how it would be hard for them to like um, go in and put out fires, but he was talking about like ambulances, you know, trying to rush into whatever calls they got, and it would be impossible to maneuver with all these bike lanes. Yeah, that's a hard. Those are hard arguments to uh, deal. No, with. those are those are easy arguments to deal with. That whole thing about the fire department not being able to get through. They were trying to say that for Rowena for the Rowena Road Diet. Um, oh, the fire department's not going to get through because um, there's going to be less lanes. It's like it actually makes it easier because there's a center turn lane. And when you hear the fire department, you pull over into the bike lane and get out of the way. If there's two lanes and you got a car next to you, you can't pull over and get out of the way and there's no middle turn lane. So we actually had the fire department come in. We had our fire department people come in and say, actually, this makes it safer. You just have to contact the right people at the fire department and have them speak. So, uh, this stuff is a bunch of bullshit. Anyways, continue on. I'm sorry. I'm going off there. Uh, you, you set Don off, Eric. Oh, no, that's all right. I guess I could have done without the little intro. But like I said, I, I just wanted to throw in my little two cents. I'll probably um, yeah. forward the video afterwards if you want to give it a look. It's a short video. Yeah, should we like like be like QAnon on those people and just attack them or no? Just I mean, he, he also mentioned, I think, an article from like The Guardian or The Hill that actually suggested all these unhealthy sort of so-called um risk about riding a bike so i didn't give i didn't take a look at it but i didn't even want to okay let's put this on the calendar nick let's look at it and do a commentary next show let's break right, this down yeah. yeah and then maybe we should do a q anon thing we can do like a little crank call or something but then what are we fighting for 
I don't know. No, I mean, if, if you, if your tactics become their tactics, what makes you, you fight better? fire with fire. Yeah. But then the whole world is blind. I'm fine. All right, Eric. <laughs> clear fire. it out. We'll clear it out. No, you might be the right. Whole, Sometimes. All of California is on fire right now. Anyways, continue on. Let's go with the sports report. Can you introduce yourself, Eric? Yes. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Ochoa. I am going to be doing a uh, report from today's stage of the Tour de France. So, I mean, uh, today w was, I think, what, a pivotal day for the, the writers who were trying to write for the general classification. Um, it was a stellar day for the education first team um, with their winner, Danny Martinez, on the day. Uh, and I think they were really hopeful for a win today because they had plenty of writers up the road well represented. Um, it was either for a stage win or to have writers up the road waiting for their team leader, Rigoberto Urán. It was a pretty interesting finish towards the, the final kilometer of the stage with a uphill drag between Danny Martinez and Leonard Kamna, who cracked on attacking 150 meters to go, which allowed for Danny Martinez to ride past him and take the stage for the day. Um, another um, other good news for the EF team was that their team leader, Rigoberto Aran, moved one position up in the general classification, so he currently sits in fourth. Defending champion Egan Bernal lost a little bit of time, but it's still holding steady at third place in the overall general classification. Primoz Roglic uh, defended his, his race lead, actually um, extending it just a tad bit, being um, the first across the line from the GC contenders. And it's it's looking to be a pretty interesting race. It's gonna it's gonna be a great one too because since 2012, um, six out of eight of the past editions have been won by a British writer from the Team Sky team, which is now Team Ineos. So now none of those favorites are in in the race, and the general classification, the top ten, there's currently four Colombians in it. So um, you know the Colombians are quite known for their climbing prowess in, in these hard races. So it's gonna be interesting to see how. The race progresses within like the next week. Wow. I some of that stuff honestly I didn't completely know what you were talking about. But nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hey, a bunch I of dudes in spandex. Right. I thought that they uh did the Tour de France this year on Zwift. That wasn't I thought that the Tour de France was canceled and they were they did it on Zwift. So I yeah, guess I they I, just they delayed it and now they're doing it. I think like with most other like sporting events, no, nobody like, you know, saw it happening this year. I think they, they were just, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to cancel it, but usually it's held around early, early July. And it's, you know, it was delayed by, you know, almost two months, but it's, um, it's been going. There hasn't been any, you know, COVID-19 scares. Only um, I think the, the race director did test positive a few days ago. Um, but the, um, the race director, oh and God. so, but the the writers have managed to to stay safe and everything, despite the fact that you see like massive crowds lining up the roads and everything. Um, yeah, yeah there, that, there has been a lot of commentary on that. I've seen, you know. Yeah, and just then, see. Yeah, we're 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 heading we're heading towards herd immunity. It's it's going to be impossible. We just we just got to get to herd immunity or something because people just can't help themselves they got to get out there yeah it's so. uh yeah like you said and, and it's much harder to control um in open road these are long stretches right, of like, road. and like how are you gonna have yeah 
like police officers telling people to like go back indoors. Um, whereas like sporting events like basketball and like all that, it's in an enclosed space and yeah, you can like clear people out. They should have stopped everything. I don't know why they're letting it go, but oh well, they're letting everything go. So that's cool. We got the yeah. Tour de France. So. But it's going, it's, um, it's well within, um, we're halfway already. It's entering the second week and, um, you know, with one more week to go, like I said, the DC race is still pretty tight. Um, there's still uh, some riders within a minute and a half of the race lead and there's, you know, the big stages are yet to come. That was great, right. Eric. Yeah, thanks for the report, man. Yeah. So uh, we'll have you back on next time. We, like I said, we I should will, do like a... Yeah, like I said, I will forward that Jeremy Clarkson video for you guys too. Yeah, let's get on that, that little too. Haters out there. We got to stomp out all the haters. Which is weird because James May, the guy that he was with in that Top Gear show, I think he's a casual bike rider. You know, it's like the self-hating bike rider. Like, like I've seen that in the spandex world, like lawyers with bikes and they're like, still adamant about bikes getting out of their way in their BMW or something. It's crazy. Yeah. Tough world. Um, right. Well, yeah, it's Eric? great. We got, we got, we got like a whole organization here. We do. We're building on the bike talk uh, staff mm -hmm. somehow volunteer staff. Are, are there going to be races for you to cover uh, after the Tour de France or do we have to make some? Um, yeah, they, I, I believe the season started about like, well, it restarted, um, I think in July, um, the other big three week race in Italy is supposed to start in October. And that one was held in, uh, May. So again, because of the whole um, pandemic situation, it's kind of, you know, being rescheduled, but, um, the calendar seems to be back in, um, back in play. The, the world championships I look are going to be held as well. Um, though the location did change. But yeah, I mean, as with other sports that have um, returned, um, so is bike racing and um, they're looking to finish up their calendar as if, you know, nothing happened. All right. Very good. All right. Thanks, Thank Eric. Yeah, of course. All right. So we're going to start wrapping this. Yeah, that was great. Um, we're going to, we're going to start wrapping this up, but, uh, but we got to, we got to get Michael Schneider back on. That guy's there's something going on. He's he's got some things going on. That guy's good. So, well, I told you, you know, when he came out, I mean, I don't know, did he just move to L.A. or what? I don't know, but he got in touch. And when I say came out, he got in touch like, with everybody. Everybody in the bike yeah. scene. Yeah, I met with him. I met with him in Cafe Tropical, and I was like, okay, this dude's organized. Let's fucking do this. So um, I really appreciate the work that guy's doing. He's he's reinvigorating the advocacy um, side of the bike scene for sure. So um, can't wait to see what's next. And all that, whatever Soletta Reynolds said, that was such a bunch of BS. Such, oh, I would, oh my God. What There's are you specifically so much, So much BS coming from her. Like, just horrifying. I mean, it was a nice way to let down somebody who did a whole lot of work. Same thing happened with, with Hyperion. We, went, we got 100 business letters. We got all the neighborhood councils, Los Fields, 
Silver Lake, okay, we didn't get out water, but two out of three, and then we got that uh, 15 neighborhood council coalition to write a letter. We got Laura Friedman, we got uh, Mike Gatto. We got so much support for that Hyperion Bridge and they still steamrolled us. And that's exactly what Paul Koretz just did. And it makes you rageful, rage-induced yeah, but- to how this happened. And I saw, when I saw that post on, you know, on social media with by Michael, I was just like, I know that rage so well, you know? After and, his feeling the day after that uh, Uplift Melrose got Yeah, killed. it's like you go through all this work to do exactly what they tell you you're supposed to do. You're supposed to build coalitions. You're supposed to get the businesses. You're supposed to get the homeowners. He got all that stuff. He got all the religious groups. He got everything. And they still steamroll you. Fuck you is just that you know you want to scream in somebody's face it's so rageful after all that work you know for the work that you is you know it's for free you're not working you're not a paid lobbyist you're like working for something good in society just for the fuck of it because you care and then this guy like paul Caretz, just says nah fuck you but I think with Salida, you can't, I mean, it's, I feel like at some level, if somebody speaks that well about something, it means that they studied it and they must have cared about it. Well, good for her. She studied it. But you know what? Like, okay, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, then the person that's really responsible is Mayor Garcetti because Mayor Garcetti gives power to the head of the LADOT. He gives political cover to the head of the LADOT. And when Viragosa was in charge, Viragosa installed this guy at the LADOT who drove a Hummer. It was like a joke. But he said to that guy, he's like, put in bike lanes. They put in 100 miles of bike lanes a year. For a couple of years, they were seriously gangstering everybody in LADOT to put it. There was an uprising in the LADOT when Mayor Viragosa was termed out. His guy was still in there. The the I forget his name already. Fuck, but he was still in there. Jaime de, de la Vega, that was the head of the LADOT. And, and from our inside connections inside the LADOT, I knew some people in there. They would tell me that that guy, the the engineers, the car centric engineers that had been there for decades were like whining and complaining about having to put in bike lanes. And Jaime de la Vega was like, that's just how it is. He just said, this is what you got to do. And they did. They cried about it, but they did. And it's like Saletta Reynolds needs to have that same power behind her of Eric Garcetti saying, nope, we're going to do this. It's like, you know, everybody, like Bloomberg with Sadiq Khan, you know, people can hate Bloomberg or whatever, but that guy basically said, hey, we're going to do bike lanes in New York City. He put his name behind it, and they did it. And Mayor Garcetti is such a wuss. He, or, or maybe he just he sincerely doesn't care, but he sure talks a good game. Well, oh, yeah, he like, also talks well. He seemed him. like he was very pro-bike, but when it comes to actions, either he's scared or he really doesn't sincerely care about pedestrian bikes because well, 
it's up to that guy. Like if he gave power mm-hmm. to Saletta Reynolds to do things, she would do it. If well, she's different... really about it. Some people, maybe they just are waiting for some, some cover. Well, exactly. That's exactly right. And the mayor has to give her cover and the mayor for whatever reason is not He's that waiting. Committed. He wants cover. Who's got to give him cover? Who gave Viragosa the entire press was against him for the whole time. And he still pressed forward. The press was against him about getting public transportation. When, when Viragosa went to go lobby Obama for, for federal dollars for public transportation, the press was against him. Uh, when Viragosa did anything for bikes, any kind of bike lane stuff, the press was against him. And, you know, they were also against him for partying with uh, Martin Sheen or whatever the fuck that guy's name was, Charlie Sheen. They, they were after him for everything. So maybe well, he, Viragosa was just sort of like, well, you know what? I'm going to fuck all you guys. I'm going to do shit that you don't like. I'm going to put in these bike lanes. No, I think Viragosa was really sincerely into bikes. He went to, he went to the Netherlands or Denmark or wherever it was, and he came back a changed person about transportation. I remember hearing he did like hundreds of sit-ups a day. He was in shape too. Viragosa, okay, he was a party guy or whatever, but he got shit done, you know, um, with transportation. He got federal dollars to Los Angeles to put in the expo line, to uh, put in, um, you know, the purple line. All this stuff that's happening now was started by him. He really rallied for it. And, you know, Garcetti's rallied for, you know, uh, Measure M. I think, you know, he's done his work on public transportation. He's gotten more money in some ways and helped with that. But he's not putting his name behind, uh, you know, he claims to be this, like, progressive, transportation-forward type of guy. But he's not putting his name on things. He's not giving cover to Saletta Reynolds. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. He's he's calling. He wants to be the environmental mayor. No, he's not. Didn't he's he not. get? Isn't there like an environmental mayor of the year, like worldwide, and like he's the one? See, all that year? stuff is like just blowing smoke up people's ass. Like that stuff doesn't fucking Can I, matter. Bef- before we transition completely, uh, Eric, our sports reporter, was a student at the school I taught at, Santee Education Complex. Um, oh, that's very cool. We had a debate team. We met Viragosa. Viragosa came to our school and spoke at our debate and supported our team because we were we were debating about uh, climate change and, and global water uh, conservation. Um, that's fantastic. And I wish somehow... What's he doing Vera now? Vera What's Viragosa doing? He ran for governor and that kind of failed. Um, who knows what he's doing now, but his son was really cool. I met his son uh, one time at uh, Bill Rosendahl's house. I just given Bill Rosendahl a bicycle lesson and uh, Viragosa stopped by for some reason with his son. And uh, we were filming with Damian Newton and um, for streets blog and Viragosa showed up and he wasn't quite sure what the hell was going on, but he was on film and he was kind of afraid like, uh, is this paparazzi? What is this? Like, cause the press was really against Viragosa. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were just sort of like, like, well, the bear's here. Like, 
you know, um, and he was just like frozen. But we talked to his son and his son was a bike rider who went to Cal State Northridge and he was an advocate. Uh, he was a bike advocate and he was following right. what was going on with the bike scene with midnight riders. And he was very interested in the group ride thing. So I think he kind of influenced his dad a little bit, you know, and, and uh, for whatever reason, Viragosa just like went to bat for bikes. Mm-hmm. And, and when Garcetti got in, the LADOT rebelled against Jaime de la Vega, who was the, uh, you know, he was the, the, the general manager of the time. And they completely, they went to city council. They, they did public comment. There were people like Brian Gallagher, senior transportation engineer. There were a bunch of people from senior people from LADOT were, were saying to fire Jaime de la Vega in public comment. It was crazy. And they, Garcetti replaced him with uh, Soleta Reynolds. So Soleta Reynolds was supposed to be our hero. But she, like, she's not taking, there's so many things she could step in and just say, this is how it is. If Mayor Vera goes, uh, if Garcetti would uh, back her up, you know, and, he, and he's not. Yeah, I mean, I guess we don't have to figure out anybody's psychology. We just look at what's happening and what's not. Maybe we can get uh, Viragosa on Bike Tar. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. Let's try it. All right. We'll talk about the good old days. We'll, we'll check off one of those boxes yeah. on Bike Talk Bingo. Two boxes. Yeah, it'll be a great guest. And we'll talk about the good old days. That's right. Hey, you want to hear right. You want to? Let's wrap it up, man. All right, let's do it. Wrap it up. You want the theme song? Hell yeah. Handle. I'm going to. I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. The transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green. I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas. Tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.